And I fear that either in practice or in reality, that sense of looking each other squarely in the eyes as equal citizens has somewhat been eroded in recent decades. And that that kind of inequality, which leads to a deterioration in the quality of our relationships, leads to other kinds of inequality. Because as soon as we stop seeing each other as moral equals, it becomes much easier to not treat each other as equals in other ways, right? Welcome to the Rooted in Relationships podcast, where we talk with renowned researchers and experts about the scientific insights that can help you build meaningful relationships with young people. I'm Ben Holberg, your host, CEO and president of Search Institute, where our own research over the past 60 years has found relationships to be the roots that all young people need to grow and thrive. Welcome to season two of the Rooted in Relationships podcast, where we talk with renowned researchers and experts about the scientific insights that can help you build meaningful relationships with young people. I'm Ben Holtberg, CEO of Search Institute, where our own research has found relationships to be the roots all young people need to grow and thrive. During our first season, we focused on the power of relationships that enable young people to shape their own lives and make an impact on their communities. This season, I'm pleased to share that we are featuring interviews conducted by educational leader and former Search Institute CEO, Kent Pickell. Throughout this season, we will explore how connections to resources, relationships, and social networks provide the key conditions that all young people need to thrive. We will consider how culture, class, family, childhood education, and other factors all influence relationship building. We kick off this wonderful season with Kent interviewing Richard Reeves, a senior fellow with the Brookings Institution. I can't wait for you to hear all the amazing guests we have ahead. So it is really exciting to welcome Richard Reeves to the Rooted in Relationships podcast. Richard is a senior fellow in economic studies at the Brookings Institution, where he holds the John C. and Nancy D. Whitehead chair. He's a director of the Future of the Middle Class Initiative and the Center on Children and Families. His research focuses on the middle class, inequality, and social mobility. Well, it's great to be with you, Ken. Thank you so much for inviting me on. I'm very excited about this conversation. So let me actually just start with um, some of the current work you're doing at Brookings, and then we'll sort of take a tour through not only your own scholarship, but maybe a little bit of your own personal story here. The, the Future of the Middle Class Initiative is a great name for an initiative. And so let me just start with what is the Future of the Middle Class Initiative? And more to the point of our conversation, what role do relationships play in the future of the middle class, and in particular, relationships in the lives of young people? Yeah. So, so it's a nice, ambitious title, isn't it, for an initiative, it right? It's just about the future of the middle class. Right. Um, actually, we, so we inaugurated it in 2016. And I think it was because of a growing sense that policymakers in general hadn't taken issues facing the middle class in America seriously enough. And, and there were many reasons to think that in 2016, of course. But that had been brewing for some time in the sense of the way that inequality is playing out isn't just the sense of like the people at the bottom being left behind. It's more of a sense of like a whole swath of society doing much worse than the people at the top. So that's the kind of the shape of inequality is very important to understand as backdrop to this middle class initiative, which is that the gap between the middle and the bottom hasn't really changed. If anything, it may have slightly narrowed, but the gap between everybody, the the bottom 80%, if you like, and the top 20%, 
nine, or if you prefer, 90%. So that's just economically where the shape of inequality has been. And so John Allen, General John Allen, when he came in as the new president of Brookings, was really anxious to do a lot more work on this whole issue about how is the middle class doing? So I ended up being, helping to run this project, which is ongoing, just really looking at kind of how, how are the middle class doing? And what are the dimensions that we should look at? And one of the dimensions, and actually one of the five key ingredients that we look at in, in the, um, the initiative is relationships. And that's because of the evidence that when you think about how your life is going and what matters, yeah, money is important. And we also look at time and we look at health, but we also look at relationships and we look at respect and we look at kind of community. So this sort of sense of um, a broader, you know, to use a horribly overused term, a kind of more holistic view about what constitutes a good quality of life has to include a relational element. And so we've looked at family relationships. We've looked at social capital, which is this, you know, this idea of kind of the, the quality of your networks and the strength of your networks as being absolutely crucial to understanding what's happening, not only to the middle class, but to you know, society more generally. So we've had this relational thread running through the work all along. A few years ago, just to, I think it was a few years ago, just to stick with that, probably 2018, you wrote a paper that I found really fascinating. And it was, in a nutshell, you argued that relational inequality is is increasing just as in socioeconomic inequality is, is increasing, at least as, as it applied along class lines. And and, and one of the things that I remember being struck by that paper, and I'm going to ask you to sort of update our listeners on sort of the, the thumbnail sketch of what your argument was there, um, but in particular, you tied it to respect as a component of that relational inequality. Can you kind of revisit some of that? And then I'll like actually explain to you sort of the interesting tangent that now it's several years later, I'm finally going to get a chance to talk with you about. When we talk about relational inequality or relational equality, we're really talking about the way in which we look at each other and treat each other, how we kind of hold each other in each other's imagination, as well as how, how we interact with each other in the thick of daily life. Like, and we're very, to a very large extent, we're relational beings. You know, I'm a sort of million liberal by background, so I have a strong emphasis on how individuals work and so on. But I think it's, you know, it's self-evident that in, in real life, we are highly relational in terms of you know, how we interact with, with people. And so the, when, when I talked about the increase in relational inequality, what I really mean is a growing sense of distance between people, particularly people of different classes and backgrounds and so on. So that, that sense of kind of slightly more attenuated relational ties, especially across various barriers of, of class, which was my main focus there. But I think you could argue of race and geography. And now I would now probably add politics too. And the, the fundamental ingredient of a good relationship is respect. And we know that from from intimate relationships, right? I mean, I'm trying to get what's that, the famous love lab studies finding that mm -hmm. what kills a marriage is a lack of respect. And so the worst thing you can do to your spouse is not argue with them, it's to roll your eyes at them. And that's because it signals a sense of just a lack of respect. And so the if the ingredient is respect, which is the, it just leads you to stronger relationships, then maybe the reason our relationships are more attenuated than they were, weaker than they were across society is because of a corrosion in respect and of mutual respect across class lines and how we look at each other. And 
I ended up using this kind of analogy, and it's interesting to me how eyes really come into this. So I just mentioned how rolling your eyes is a sign of disrespect. But, mm-hmm. you know, famously from political philosophy, this idea of looking someone squarely in the eye as being a measure of mutual respect. And if you think about that, that idea like that can look each other in the eye, we're, we're, you know, it's harder for us to do this cr- across the distance of the internet. But, but right. that's absolutely fundamental, right? Look me in the eye and say that. Kind of look me in the eye. And when you're deferential, you're supposed to lower your eyes. Think about the phrase, you look down on someone, right? You really look down on someone and think about that. And I was very struck in writing some of this by something I discovered actually from the African-American Museum, which is that one of the very last things that Mammy Till said to Emmett Till before he went to Mississippi to be murdered was, don't look the white folks in the eye, Emmett. Don't look the white folks in the eye. And the reason for that is because for a person of color, for a black person in America at that time, to look a white person in the eye, same with women in certain societies. Now, the very fact of looking someone in the eye is to assert moral equality. And that that equal gaze is a mark of mutual respect and equal citizenship. And I fear that either in practice or, or in reality, that sense of looking each other squarely in the eyes of equal citizens has somewhat been eroded in recent decades. And that that kind of inequality, which leads to a deterioration in the quality of our relationships, leads to other kinds of inequality. Because as soon as we stop seeing each other as moral equals, it becomes much easier to not treat each other as equals in other ways, right? Why should you get the vote? Why mm-hmm. should you get transfer payments, etc. right? So th- these are different kinds of equality, and I call them resource equality, which is more about money and stuff, rights equality, which is more about laws, and and then respect or relational equality, which is basically about this idea of holding each other as moral equals. And I do strongly believe that they are related to each other and that if you lose relational equality, then you may well lose the other kinds of equality too. It's much easier to deny things to people if you don't see them as your moral equals and vice versa. Mm -hmm. If someone is actually very, very distant from you economically or in other ways, then it's harder to build those kinds of relationships which would uh, keep us together as a society. So the causal arrows between the different kinds of equality, I think, run both ways. Yeah, when I read your article, I read it in part through the lens of my own grandparents. My my grandfather was the head custodian in the school district in Menasha, Wisconsin, and my grandmother was the head lunch lady. So they were they literally was kind of like this married couple, and she was in charge of the lunches, and he was in charge of you know the buildings. And whenever I would go visit them, you know, he didn't have a high school education; she did have a high school education. They lived modestly, but and you always have to be a little careful about what the fog of memory you know brings you to. Mm. But even though they were quintessentially sort of. I don't know, for lack of a better way to put it, you know, working class, incredibly proud people. And and the sense that they would have felt in, uh, be, being looked down on would have been radioactive to them. There was this sort of, you know, sense that we are sort of full participants in the the community and the society and absolutely no sense of sort of, I don't know, shame or underachievement for being in jobs that were at the time, you know, tough, tough, but, you know, well-paying jobs. And then, you know, fast forward a couple of generations and I got, you know, I was on financial aid and stuff, but ended up, you know, getting degrees from Yale and Harvard and places like that. And I remember my grandmother coming out there from Menasha, Wisconsin, and very much enjoying going to these elite institutions, but never any sense at all that she didn't belong there, you know, because she was the lunch lady. And so maybe kind of a, a crazy tangent, but I did have this sense in your article of this notion of, of a generational decline in that kind of mutual respect across class lines that, that, that yeah. reading it brought home for me. 
Well, it's interesting. And, I, and actually, I sort of blame, well, I blame myself partly to the extent that I'm sort of part of a generation and a class that really promoted the idea of meritocracy and upward mobility mm -hmm. and so on to a degree that becomes disrespectful of those who do not have that journey and of those who are sort of not like us, if you like, the people who didn't go to Yale yep. and Harvard. And I went to Oxford, right? So there we go. Like, mm -hmm. here we are having conversations with people with incredibly elite educations, but both very upwardly mobile. And and there's the kind of, there's a sort of disrespect that's paid by people who are just born to privilege for the for others. But in some ways, I think a more pernicious kind of disrespect is sometimes shown by the people who have been upwardly mobile to those who have failed to do so. Yep. Because then it's like, well, I did it. And then what happens is that the people who are kind of not doing that get treated differently as somehow lesser. But the example you've got is very resonant to me too. I mean, I think about my own parents and grandparents visiting the elite institutions that I ended up, you know, well, Oxford, that I ended up attending. And you're right, the same thing, right? Just because my grandfather was a forester in you know North mm -hmm. Wales, my mum was a nurse and so on, it was, they held their head just as high. And I think people probably looked at them the same way. And so there's something, and obviously this gets inflected through race very strongly in the US too, but there's something a little bit damaging to that comes in the in the sort of tail stream, if you like, the kind of back backwash of meritocracy, which is kind of sense of like what happens to the quotes losers, which is what Michael Young warned about, of course, in his original novel mm. <laughs> on the meritocracy, which is that it's really tough to not be doing very well in a meritocracy because you're the it can only be your fault. And you just get these examples where who was the guy who was was I'll say he was caught bagging groceries in Trader Joe's, and he'd actually be, he was a pretty famous TV actor, I think from the Cosby Show yeah, or something. Uh, I can't now remember the details. Yes, he played the brother. He played the brother in the do you Cosby know the Show. Story? Yes, I do. Yeah. yeah, and, there, and it was interesting. There was this kind of initial outcry, like, oh my God, how the mighty have fallen, he's bagging groceries. And then there's this kind of initial counter-reaction to that, which is like, who the hell are you to tell me that this isn't a good thing? And then they ended up sort of parlaying into a very interesting conversation about the nature of work and you know respect and dignity and so on. But the initial reaction was like, oh my God, you know, poor him, what's happened to him? And, and there was this sort of sense of having failed somehow and bagging groceries being somehow beneath someone who'd once been an actor. And I love the story about the fact that Harold Wilson, the Labour Prime Minister in the UK, his son was a train driver. And the people who were on that train, you know, knew all the time. It was Harold Wilson's son. He loved being a train driver. That was great. And that was a perfectly appropriate thing for a prime minister's son to do. But I'm not sure in the US you'd expect very many presidential daughters or sons to be driving a train or the equivalent or a bus or the equivalent. And somehow they would they would have something would have gone wrong for that to have happened. That's a problem, I think. Yeah. A huge problem. One sort of yeah, and and one little further step out on that tangent. About the same time as I read your piece on relational inequality, I also read something by it was David Yeager, who's now at the University of Texas at Austin, um, was doing fascinating work that I know he's continuing, but I, I don't think I've seen recent publications on the heightened adolescent sensitivity to respect, which shows up physiologically in a number of markers, but that now we're realizing that this sense of being looked down upon for adolescence is just wildly influential, especially young people of color, young people living in poverty, people growing up in marginalized communities, and that David's work was really highlighting this sort of missing piece of 
conceptualizing age-appropriate respect, because that doesn't mean you're 15 and you're an adult and you should be treated with all the privileges of the adult, but his this fascinating paper, and long story short, one of the levers for increasing respect was relational interaction. That was a combination of um, high expectations and belief that those expectations can be met, in this case on the part of teachers. And so that notion mm. of respect yes. as this really, really critical determinant of a lot of the things that we're after. Yeah, I think you pointed me towards that work in the first place, Ken, and I found it fascinating too. Oh, that's right. I did send that to you. You're right. It, it, yeah, it, it means that what it means is that a 15-year-old is, is not very much like a 5-year-old or even a 10-year-old, right? So a 15-year-old is more like a 20-year-old than a 10-year-old when it comes to the need to be treated with respect. And your work on developmental relationships, meaning that that's like a two-way street. So I'm listening as well as talking. And that means that if you take some material around whatever the issue is uh, for a 10-year-old, you can't just update it. You can't just sort of make the language, you know, make it more sophisticated for a 15-year-old. You have to completely change the pedagogy. You have to completely shift the relational context within which you're having that conversation. And in some ways, I think, whilst you're right that they're not necessarily full adults, adolescents are more sensitive because of the stage to signs of being disrespected than than maybe some adults are right you know that you haven't developed such a thick skin and it's like there's a reason why being dissed is such a kind of important um mm-hmm. phrase for sort of kind of why i'm dating myself now right young people don't say you're dissing me anymore but 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 it but, but that is really capturing something real which is you're dissing me which is don't disrespect me or aretha franklin's you know R-E-S-P-E-C-T and so on. So there is a real mm-hmm. capturing real things. And I agree that too, very often with adolescents, we treat them too much as like grown-up toddlers rather than many adults. Yeah. Um, shifting back to the, the, the work on social capital that, that you've done, we recently, we, we've just been doing a new project to develop some practical measures, measures of social capital that can be used in schools and community colleges and others. And so as we've been doing that, we've been getting to know the the research literature and researchers in the social capital space well. And at Search Institute, we're a little more historically situated in developmental psychology, but it's all about relationships and they blur. And we did a, a, a not scientific or representative, but informal survey of a group of about 27 researchers that we that we interviewed. And we said, what's the number one research priority coming forward in your view? And this is not, not something we've published yet. It's part of kind of some work that we're doing to conceptualize, you know, the future of our own research and the field. And anyway, the number one priority with more than 80% agreement in this non-representative sample was that the biggest need is for research on interventions to strengthen social capital, as opposed to further research to demonstrate the power of social capital. Is it malleable? Can it actually be strengthened where it exists or built up where it doesn't? Is this something that's come up in your work at, at all? I know the stuff that I've seen that you've put out at Brookings just powerfully speaks to the influence of social capital. But how much are you thinking about or how much do you think we know about the degree to which it can be changed? That's a great and a big question and fascinating results you, you, you got there, actually. It's interesting because whilst the concept itself remains pretty radically underspecified, and contested in all kinds of ways. I do think we've got to a point now where there's just enough evidence that even though it's very squiggly and slippery, that 
it's just so obvious that it counts, right? And I think some of the big data work that's been done really has shown that in terms of the work that Raj Chetty has led out of Opportunity Insights and, and others. And, and you referred to work that I've been doing with Camille Bousset, my colleague at, at Brookings, around some of the, you know, just network mapping and so on. And so I think it's, it's really clear now that it matters as to how, how much it can be influenced especially through public policy, I don't know, you know, and I, and I think one of the most difficult things to discover as someone that's trying to do the kind of work that we're doing and, you know, that you're doing is, is to find out there's something that really matters, but it's really hard to do anything about. It's very frustrating, mm-hmm. but that does happen. <laughs> that's a great way to put it. And I think certainly too early to, to certainly, you know, it's just, it's just like, like there's a bit of a tendency to kind of have a linear assumption with like, we found out this thing matters. Let's, Let's find an intervention that moves it, and then therefore, you know, everything will get better. And I think, from a public policy point of view, the the best hope is to create the conditions within which relationships can be built and to flourish, rather than to try and directly build them and, and social capital. So, I think a direct, like actually, it's a slight digression, but it works. Like Tony Blair back in the UK had a an respect gender. Right, we're going to have an agenda. We're going to make people. We're going to have respect, and we're here. Like, no, no, you're not. You're certainly not going to have it as a result of a government agency, right? And so, I tend to think of this as like: what are the conditions? What do we know about the conditions within which good relationships are formed? And then, how can we create those conditions? And how can we ensure that we're not excluding people from those conditions? And so, it's, it might seem like quite an indirect approach, but for example, if we discover that some of the most important relationships that people have from a social capital point of view are, are created in educational institutions or through workplaces, then what you don't want to do is throw people out of those. You don't want to exclude, say, the young black men or the black boys from educational institutions, and you don't want to do that anyway. But if, if that turns out to be a kind of incubator, a crucible of relationship, of social capital building, then you've kind of mm-hmm. hit them twice, right? Not only have you said, okay, you're going to be denied some of these educational opportunities, we've also deprived you of these opportunities. So, so that's number one, don't exclude. But then like within schools or within other institutions, workplaces, you know, community organizations, et cetera, what do we know about the conditions that seem to be more amenable to the creation of relation and how do we create those conditions right i know it's a slightly vague answer but that's that's as far as my thinking has gone right because i just aiming directly at it we're no, going to I build better relationships so, i mean right. well there was a thing that new york times columnist david brooks wrote at one point that stuck out in my head he wrote you can't scale relationships and while on one hand i understood his point on the other i said that can't be true because if we can't scale relationships then we can never actually address all of the um social needs that we have around us and without trying to remember or summarize what i'm sure was a much more complex argument that david was making i think you've just come up with the best answer which is but we can scale the conditions for relationships and that that has a policy element, you know, not repeating what the United States did for 15 years and that I lived through as a school district administrator under No Child Left Behind, where we defined reductively what constitutes success. That matters. It, it also has to do with on the ground, just as you were just saying in schools, creating the enabling conditions for relationships. Sometimes when I am working with educators, I'll simply highlight some of those basic structural questions 
Do you have time for relationships? Have you ever had professional development or training on relationships? Do you have any data on relationships? Do you actually have any professional collaboration around strengthening relationships? Do you have relationships anywhere in your mission statement or your vision statement or your logic model? Or And these are just sort of structural points of entry, but usually the answer is no, that everyone knows relationships are critical, but they sort of expect them to emerge if we get the curriculum right, rather than sort of mm. seeing them as a kind of active ingredient or, or another piece of the, the formal puzzle that we need to be thinking about in organizations that serve kids. You know, I want to ask you a little bit, because you alluded to it before, your own experience growing up and your early career in the UK. And one of the things that I've just wondered about as I've followed your you know, work here at Brookings is what was the story behind that transition? And then to the point, do you think being somebody who, I think you've characterized yourself as sort of Brit American, or you've been characterized that way. Does that perspective uh, in your the research and policy work you do now, does, does it give you any um, advantages or any challenges in dealing with, for instance, the really deep and sometimes uniquely American issues of race that you referenced earlier? Well, it's a, it's a good question. I think that the, so let's start with the challenges. I think that along with the normal challenges of just you know, understanding a slightly different culture. And of course, we are famously, you know, too cult- divided by a common language. So I do think mm-hmm. there have been some aspects of American culture, which I still struggle to understand. You know, one is the tribalism around colleges, for example. I, 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 will, I will never understand that. And therefore, I tend to be somewhat demeaning about it probably and because I'm missing something important but but on a much bigger scale it really took me a while honestly to come to terms with issues around race in pretty much every aspect of my work from family policy through intergenerational mobility inequality segregation so on and it's not like I didn't know that the US had a huge issue with race and was highly segregated and so on but but it was the way, particularly anti-black racism, just is such a like a salient and just just this irreducible, like this hardcore, like this rock rock-like inequality in the U.S. This is kind of no going around it, right? All the waters of U.S. culture and policy just go round this granite-like fact of anti-black racism. And so then I really did start to do quite a lot more work on race and quite a few years ago now at Brookings through the social mobility lens and trying to understand this specific issue, issue of, and, I, and, I, and again, I think it's very quite specifically anti-black racism and just the shocking levels of uh, lack of upward mobility for black Americans. And in some ways to my mind, even more shocking levels of downward mobility from the middle class. And we're now actually about to start some work on the black middle class, partly for that, that reason. So I just think that's a, Race is just so differently framed. I'm not saying there isn't racism in the UK, but it's just such a, you know, it's so, it's so, anyway, to put it in social scientific terms, very often when we're looking at issues around social mobility in the UK, it is true that if you kind of take into account income background and various other things, that kind of race is a bit less salient. Whereas it's like in the US, that never, ha- almost never happens. It's right. It doesn't matter what you like. Race is just, especially for black Americans, mm-hmm. it's just always there. It has like a almost a like unique quality that survives regression tables and is just, as I said, it's it's very, very different. So I do think that's been a challenge for me in my own work. And obviously being white as well, the white British gives you a sort of wide-eyed innocence in some ways, um, which can be both helpful 
but also very unhelpful. I think it's an advantage in some ways because you do get to observe two cultures which are very different. I mean, the, you know, the differences between U.S. culture and British culture, they are very, very different cultures, and um, particularly around issues around class and meritocracy and, and, and so on. And, and so that has been quite helpful. I think I've been able to see, I see the ruthlessness with which the class reproduction machine works in the U.S. with more clarity than I think many of my colleagues because they're, they're a little bit less used to watching a class machine in action whereas in the uk you just grow up in it right it's like everybody's a cog in the mm -hmm. class and you're so class mm -hmm. and so actually you know the i actually hated how obsessed with class everybody was in the uk right class kind of it was like class consciousness it was class obsessiveness but then i came to the us and i was like you know what you people need to think a bit more about class and you particularly you people at the top need to need to really look at it because you know, I think I said this in one of the pieces I wrote, which is that at least in the UK, posh people have the decency to feel guilty, at least some of the time. And I don't generally think guilt is a terribly mm. useful emotion, but but there was, and by that, what I meant was there was more of an awareness of privilege in the UK. There's more of an awareness, and there was more of a struggling with the ways in which privilege is passed on. So I'll give you one example and then stop. But it's a kind of very personal one, which is like in, in London. So I'm upper middle class, grew up in London, you know, in London, professional people, generally left of center that I was working with. Where do you send your kid to high school? And the decision to send them to a fee paying school, to a private high school, is fraught with moral difficulty, right? You're in for some pretty rough dinner parties. Now, I'm not suggesting rough dinner parties constitute some terrible loss, but, but nonetheless, the moral justification for choosing to use your money to give your kids an unfair advantage in the education, that's just a big, that's just a big, that's just an issue, right? In the US, mm -hmm. it literally wouldn't occur to anybody to think that was an issue, right? To all of my most liberal friends, right, who come to the US and all of their kids are at Sidwell Friends and Georgetown Prep and uh, this is all in Washington. So the, those people in Washington who are listening will know who these schools I'm talking about, right? All the president's kids go to, like, in the UK, David Cameron, the prime minister of the UK who went to Eton, couldn't send his children to private K-12 schools while he was prime minister. One of the first things he did when he lost office was, mm. put, was pull him out. of. But he could only send his children to government schools while he was the head of the government. Here, the idea that a president wouldn't send their kids to a private school is unthinkable. And so I make no comment on, on the whys and where the moral decisions that parents are making. What struck me was just that it was people would, it would without even a backward glance, without even pausing to reflect on whether there was any inherent fairness in that. The most incredibly left-wing people I knew were spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on their children's private education without blinking. And it's the without blinking bit that really struck me. I was like, does that cause you any difficulty? And they'd be like, what, what do you mean? <laughs> All getting an internship. With them. So anyway, I promised I'd stop, so I'll stop. Mm -hmm. No, no, it's fascinating. We could go on. <laughs> there was a period in the U.S. in particular, especially, boy, 15, 20 years ago, but it still remains today when the, the, the PISA test results started to come out and everybody was looking at Finland or Singapore and things. And on, on one hand, uh, I was an administrator in an urban school district at the time. A lot of that was starting to get attention. And on one hand, I thought it was great because I also had sort of a, an international background before I got focused on American kids in education and mine was all in China. And so I, I liked this idea of international benchmarking. Mm. 
But very often, it, it was so inattentive to the unique racial convergence of class and race in the United States context. But I never wanted to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I would say, like, yes, there is a lot for us to learn from Singapore and Finland. But let, let's not look at the PISA test results, uh, especially of, you know, low-income kids of color in the United States, and think that if we just had a stronger central ministry of education to make coherent policy, that would address all of these issues. But I also would be in these meetings with teachers and others who would say, because of our unique diversity, they would say that sometimes positively, sometimes negatively, we had nothing to learn from the rest of the world, which it, it doesn't make sense either. Mm. And so it's a certain sense of this, this exceptionalism that we have in the US, but not assuming it doesn't mean we have a lot to learn from other systems and contexts, like what you're sharing around the UK example. So when yeah. you mentioned the, the tribalism of U.S. colleges, and we, we don't really have to go into that as much, it did bring up for me some of the other writing you have done about higher education in the United States really as kind of an engine of inequality in many respects. And given that most of our listeners to this podcast are people who either work with kids or care about kids or focused on education and youth development generally, I think that's a, a tremendously relevant subject for us to turn to right now because in so many ways that's kind of the end of the rainbow that a lot of people are thinking about, okay, get the kids into some kind of college and we've done our jobs, though I think that's that's even starting to shift a little bit for some reason. So talk a little about your work on higher education and uh, what some of your findings have, have been and maybe even what you think some of the solutions might be. Well, my observation is that higher education is where the rubber really hits the road in terms of class inequality in, in the US. Or to put it slightly differently, it's like where it gets illuminated, right? So there are these all these class differences and race differences and the connection between the two are taking place in the first 18 years of life, of course, all the way through K-12. But when it gets to the next stage is when you go, wowza, okay. And you look at the difference in the institution, enrollment rates, but institutions attended, credentials achieved. I mean, it's just like the, it's like the light gets turned on and you suddenly see the inequality, right? It's pretty startling to me when you look at the relationship between income background and chances of attending post-secondary education or, or where you attend. And for me, one of the most striking and depressing charts that I have ever seen in my career was produced by Opportunity Insights and the Raj Chetty team, which has on one axis parental income and on the other axis whether you're enrolled in college, post-secondary education between, I think, 18 and 23. In other words, the standard years you'd do it. And it was a perfect correlation. I mean, mm -hmm. it's just, I've never seen a correlation like it's like every dot, yeah. every dot is along the regression line. And of course they have IRS records. So it's like mil millions of, you know, and the correlation coefficient is 0.67. So mm -hmm. what that means is that I can predict your, I can predict whether you're in college or not between those ages, just by knowing your parents' income. I don't need to know your SAT score, your GPA or your race, or your gender. Just, just tell me, just tell me how much money your parents have got. That's an astonishing fact. And an incredibly depressing one. And that's just whether you're enrolled. And then you look at who's going where and the debate about higher education. So the median destination for bottom 80%, for those from bottom 
I mean, this is community college, two-year community college. They're the kind of work horses of equality in the, the US. But you wouldn't think that from the debate about college debt or college admissions and so on. You wouldn't, you wouldn't think that. But of course, every member of Congress has a four-year college degree and everybody writing about it and podcasting about it has a four-year college degree at least. And so it's really just this, this world in which you leave high school at 18 and go to a four-year college and get a four-year degree and maybe already start thinking about what you're going to do for kind of post-grad is this incredibly rarefied world that most Americans don't live in. But it's the one that dominates policy debate. So the higher education system in the US takes the inequality that was given to it, which is significant, and then makes it wider. It takes, it, it just accelerates it. It amps the inequality so that by whatever inequalities you've got at 18, well, look at what you got by 23. I mean, it's those five years, right? Just like, okay, it was massive inequality at 18, sure. But then wait till the colleges get into it, right? And then just we stratify. So the stratification that takes place, it's like this sorting machine that takes place, right? Because of course, you've got different levels of selectivity. And so on. And so it's like this, it is like a machine, right? So it's like at 18, you get put into this machine and then you get churned, the machine turns and then you come out the other end. And pretty much at that point, you're, you, a lot of your life is determined because there's less and less mobility once you've started your career than there used to be. So it's more now about how, how much human capital you get early, which means the stratification of higher education has massive lifelong implications. And there should be something we could do about that. And I think there, are, there is a lot we can do about that. I mean, f- for a start, we could make it a lot simpler. For second, we could make it we could make it a public good, especially for those who need it more. Thirdly, we could massively invest in community colleges who are just woefully underfunded by comparison to the kind of elite colleges at the top. We could break the current admissions system, which claims to be meritocratic, but is no such thing because it just uses the inequalities that are presented to it. So it's not our fault. We'd love to take more poor kids, but they just don't get good enough grades. Hello. <laughs> so the application of a quotes meritocratic ideal means that the college admissions system for selective colleges in the US, it's, I mean, it's, it's just, it's ruthlessly effective at making sure that you just take the kids from the upper middle class and and above and you know you see that again from all the data so the way the money goes the way admissions works the focus of policymakers is just all on the wrong end of the distribution of higher education meanwhile you know the elite colleges complained when there was no tax put on their massive endowments <laughs> and so it's just this very weird weird thing and again a cultural issue is just like the complexity of the US system, the fact that you allow for profits into the system to basically just prey on um, certain students, the new subprime market of expensive debt mm-hmm. to get a worth, pretty much worthless education from a for-profit secondary thing. And one of the first things that DeVos and Trump did when they came in was tear up the small moves that Obama had made just to unregulate for-profits. I mean, the for-profit sector is just a, a, an immoral carbuncle on the side of the US higher education system. It's just, for me, I just it, how we allow it to happen. When you just, you just, like in real time in front of us, you've just got these institutions who make money from preying on kids and giving them worthless educations and saddling them with debt. And we're like, oh, that's a shame. And then move on. It's like, how are we allowing that to happen? So they're just, again, I'm coming at it with a European perspective, but you look at the US higher education system and basically say, are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. Have, have you talked with any higher education leaders in the U.S. about your ideas and the conclusions that you just ran us through? And, and if so, what are their reactions? 
It can never <laughs> yeah. change. You're wrong. You're right, but it can never well, change. All of the above. It's like a, I mean, yes, I've had some robust exchanges with various, especially from the selective ones. That I don't, the whole, don't get me started on legacy preferences. And I didn't raise that because that's just it affects such a small group of people. But it is, again, just completely unconscionable. And symbolically, I think, important to run a hereditary principle in college admissions is just like the only country in the world that does it it's just I, but i think the problem is the market and so the what the most thoughtful leaders will say is we'd like to do better but we're trapped into a certain market equilibrium and so they're competing for the kind of full tuition dollars they're throwing merit aid at certain you know students they're they're in they're in a market and they're competing and they're a very savvy you know the more savvy the consumers the ones who've got the money and the upper middle class because they, they game they game the system. And so the economics don't really add up. And so I think, you know, if I'm feeling more sympathetic to a lot of these colleges, I think they're trapped into a market equilibrium, which provides for suboptimal social welfare in terms of, you know, being engines of upward mobility, because they just need that they need the, they need the rich kids basically because of the way the market's constructed. And that's one of the best arguments, I think, for, you know, and I've changed my mind on this, actually, for making higher education a public good, is just to take out some of that, some of those distort, the distortionary effects of the competition for the kind of full full freight tuition from the, the richer kids that they have to do to kind of fill in their, you know, f- complete their class, uh, at least in kind of public education, which should be, fr- I think now should be free. I actually argue it should be an exchange for public service, so public service for public good. Mm. That's a slightly separate mm-hmm. argument but yeah it's interesting they're quite defensive sometimes but um like it's a market failure honestly i think u.s higher education is just an ex- example of a gigantic market failure well let's pivot from that optimistic assessment of um higher education and as young people are getting ready to and entering young adulthood to the other end of the age spectrum i remember one of the first places i read your work quite a while ago maybe shortly after I got to Search Institute in 2012, you did a piece on parenting and this idea that investing in the capacity of parents was just this this potentially very impactful thing that could be happening. There was lots of evidence like Head Start to say it might not be always the right thing, but that building the capacity of parents to to parent and especially to build uh, you know strong what we would call developmental relationships with young children was potentially this really powerful and much underutilized lever has 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 parenting continued to be a focus of your of your work or can you take us back to some of what you were finding at that point in in thinking about the possibility of building the capacity of parents mm-hmm. as a way to advance equality sure i also did some similar work in the uk coming to similar conclusions that that parents really, really matter in terms of the development of various skills, particularly in the very early years. And I think in some ways that the difficulty here is that it's, it may fall into the category of some of the things we were talking about earlier, which is even if it's important, doesn't mean you can do anything about it as a public policy, as a matter of public policy anyway. But I think parenting, right. there is something, there are some things that one can do about it. And at that time, I mean, all the debate was actually about pre-K and education and so on. And so what it was really about was substituting for parents. What it was really about doing was sort of saying, look, we need to, we need to do the learning, right? The, the state will have to do it. And, and I think that's true, by the way. But the trouble is that pre-K is quite late. <laughs> you know, what we need is pre-pre-K. And we do know that the first, you know, two, three years are pretty important. And, you know, you know that probably better than, better than me. It's 
always important to keep investing, but I think to just ignore those early, effectively ignore those early years is a mistake. The reason why sometimes people do that is perhaps because it's difficult to think about families and it feels paternalistic. You know, you know, the term is used deliberately here to tell parents mm-hmm. how they should raise their kids and so on. So it feels quite nanny state, again, using the term deliberately. There's a reason why we say nanny state. But I just think the evidence is overwhelming that the parenting really matters. So then the question becomes, okay, well, how are parents doing and how can we help them? And the answer is it varies and there might be some ways to help them. So there are some some programs. So if we look at uh, nurse family partnership and so on that do seem to improve relationships with parents, there are some good reading programs. And I think it's partly just about back, back to asking the question and asking parents to think about it is important. It's just very difficult territory politically because people are kind of worried about this preachiness thing but i'm reasonably convinced that there is a certain amount we can do and then of course more topically we can support parents by financially giving them more security you know i'm really struck by how many parents of young children don't know what their work schedules are going to be like so flexible working is an issue and if you're economically insecure it's quite difficult to spend that time to develop those relationships with kind of young children so i think there's a combination of economic and social factors here that would allow parents to do it and then last but not least the attention that needs to be paid to maternal depression in particular is something i personally feel quite strongly about that that one of the things that can really damage these the development of those kinds of relationships is depression in particularly in the mother but in parents generally and that's where the father can actually be quite important fathers are very powerful antidepressants it turns out for mothers if they're involved but that kind of the gap that can be left is important and so i think investing much more heavily in screening and mental health support and frankly just in a bit more physical support for new mums right again i come at this from a european perspective where you know just people just people come to your house people help you more there are health visitors (laughs) for all new parents and and so i think that the the investment in those early months in particular would pay dividends in terms of helping parents, you know, to to do, to do parenting. So it's a difficult area. I haven't done much as much on it recently, but I, I remain of the view that in terms of bang for your buck from public public policy, you may well get more from some of that than from example from universal pre K. That's interesting because that sort of feeds into one of the questions I wanted to ask you as we start to head for home and wind up. If you could pick one policy in the U.S that involves kids in at any point in the developmental continuum to advance in the interest of reducing inequality, what would it be? I'm going to choose something deliberately specific. And, and I do so not, not because I think it's the most important or would have the biggest effect, but because I think it speaks to some of the issues we've spoken about, which is a massive investment in the last year of high school through to the first year of post-secondary. That would include, I have colleagues who have done work on this, Martha Ross and others, what does the summer look like? But also, what does the last year of high school look like? And in particular, massive investments in work experience and vocational opportunities in that last year of high school, huge investment in summer schools through it, and a massive investment in the kind of relationships that help people to make that transition. My work has led me to believe that the damage is very often done in terms of inequality, and the good is done in terms of equality, if you like, in the transitions the transition from home to school and pre-K, the transition from middle to high school, the transition from high to post-secondary, the transition from post-secondary to labor market, the transition from being a non-parent to being a parent, and so on. And so it's just these kind of 
Right, sometimes we think about the kind of opportunity structures being like a conveyor belt or like blocks, right? So you've got this bit and then this bit and then this bit and then this bit. I think it's much more like stepping stones. You go from one stone to the next and they're slippery. And some people have got one person holding each hand as they go across them and other people are just doing it on their own. They don't know where they're going, but making that transition across. And I've come to believe that the years, let's say 16 through 19, maybe 16 through 20, are absolutely mission critical and woefully neglected in public policy we dribble we let we let we let high school just dribble its way out there's very little follow-up we let the college enrollment thing kind of do its own thing with very little support and a complex system and so on we then send kids to college with very little support and so many of them like most people who start community college do not start the second year there's a huge amount of catch-up learning required and so like that those years, those four years couldn't be more important. And I think we actually just need a national strategy to just invest in the critical four years. And in particular, that transition from kind of high to post, which I think we just used to have a world where you did high school and then off you went to work or maybe to call a few to college and so on. And, you know, just the machine worked wonderfully was the idea. It's now just a mangled mess in terms of equity. And so that would be where I would kind of put it. I would focus on that transition period. Yeah, oh, that's fantastic. And I do know Martha's work there at uh, Brookings, and I I commend people to it. Our work at Search Institute definitely shows that kids in the U.S. across all backgrounds are much less likely to experience what we call developmental relationships as they progress through the age continuum. And right at that moment of leaving adolescence and moving into young adulthood, they have them not just in schools, but also in student support programs and in out-of-school time settings, much less than when they're in middle school and elementary school, but they need them at least as much, if not more. And yeah. so that's a fascinating, more in some ways. fascinating I'm, decision. Yeah, I'm interested. Yeah, I didn't really expect it to go that way, really. But I'm very interested in Larry Steinberg's work, you know, in the Age of Opportunity. And he's, um, although he actually mm-hmm. criticizes some of my work, I think, I now think probably fairly, but there's kind of the plasticity that we get again in adolescence, I think is kind of undervalued in the way we think about um, public policy. And you're right, there's relationships and, and but these transitions, right? Transitions are when I think relationships really matter, right? The hand on each side as you cross to the next stepping stone. And so if there is a period in life where having good relational networks and supports matter, then the fragile critical period through, from adolescence through to early adulthood is probably at the top of the list. So I know there's a lot of stuff about pre-K and early years and so on, but now, actually, in fact, Jim Heckman was at an event that I was at once and he said, you know what, I'm a bit worried that everyone's focusing too much on the early years and not worrying enough about adolescence. I said, well, whose fault is that? <laughs> but but it's true. I mean, like, Heckman's work is always famous, pre-Ks, right? but, but he's like, yeah, no, no, you know, adolescence really matters as well. I was like, yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> Yeah, that is fantastic. Well, I'm glad to hear he was saying that because it is true that mm. his work has generated a lot of the focus in the early early years for good reason. There's a, it's getting a little dated, but there's I think kind of a classic book by Barbara Schneider and David Stevenson called "The Ambitious Generation: America's Teenagers Motivated but Directionless." And it's what's interesting is it's a longitudinal, multi generational study. And back to our earlier discussion at the beginning of this conversation about grandparents and generations, they really conclude that two generations ago, the pathways to career were almost entirely relational. You knew what your parents did or your grandparents did. And so getting a job 
in the proximity was was quite clear because th- that was your destiny and there was a benefit to that but then as opportunity has has expanded and also as a lot of other factors have come into play you now have a lot of kids who don't have a parental or grand grandparental model for where they might go after high school and we're not doing much to fill that gap the absence of that sort of a generational path let me just ask you one final question richard cuz um, it's a question i've asked a number of the people who are number of people who are on the podcast as we hopefully by the time in the late summer or early fall when people begin to listen to these podcasts are further emerging from the covid pandemic what in your view is something we've learned during the pandemic that we must not forget as we hopefully over the course of the next year return maybe not to the old normal but to something different that time really matters and that scheduling and pressure of time really matters and so finding ways to help parents and children to have a relationship with time that is somewhat less fraught than it typically is is i think very important the guilty secret of the pandemic and we've done work showing this is that this is not just an affluent thing but even among kind of middle class and working class families mothers especially they have felt able to breathe we had one mum say to us you know it used to be 6am alarm off fire drill for the next three hours getting kids ready for school getting herself ready for work getting everyone out the door and so on and so there's something about the kind of industrial way in which we've treated time that has really really squeezed a lot of american families a lot of kids and i think it relates to the theme your work and the theme of this podcast because actually you know good quality relationships do take time and so finding time and thinking about how the labor market and education and family life interact with each other in such a way as to just take the pressure down a notch or two on american families such that there is more room to breathe and talk and build relationships. I think that, you know, everyone's guilty to say it, but people have been given the gift of time by the pandemic, time with their kids in many cases, time. And the danger is you don't want to say anything positive, right? Because it seems to neglect the terrible things that happened. But I do think that if we go back to the same way in which we structure school and work and family, then, then we will have missed an opportunity to rethink our relationship with time in a way that could be more conducive to our relationships. Well, thank you so much. This has been such an exciting opportunity to you know, connect with you. And we, I, I ran out of about another half dozen subjects of the focus of your research that I was thinking <laughs> of asking you about, but we've exhausted the hour and it's been enlightening and enjoyable. And I, again, encourage folks to check out your own podcast and really thank you for taking the time to join us for Rooted in Relationships. Well, thank you for having me on. Great conversation, Kent. That was Kent Pickell interviewing Richard Reeves, Senior Fellow with the Brookings Institution. I'm Ben Holtberg, CEO of Search Institute. I want to thank you for listening and ask that you review Rooted in Relationships wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews are the best way for others to find out about this show. Thank you so much for listening. And we will be back in two weeks with our next episode of Rooted in Relationships. 
The Rooted in Relationships podcast is made possible by grants from Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the John Templeton Foundation. The opinions expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views of the John Templeton Foundation nor the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. For more resources on how to build and strengthen developmental relationships with young people, visit the Resources Hub on our website, searchinstitute.org. If you have the chance, we'd love it if you could review the show wherever you get your podcasts. Reviews are one of the best ways for others to find out about the show. On behalf of everyone at Search Institute, thank you so much, and we'll see you next time.